Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, award-winning writer Marcel Theroux on his latest novel, The Secret Books. Marcel Theroux is the author of four previous novels, The Paper Chase, winner of the 2002 Somerset Mom Award, A Blow to the Heart, Far North, which was shortlisted for America's prestigious National Book Award, and Strange Bodies, and his latest novel, The Secret Books, we're going to be talking about today. Marcel, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me, Neil. So, what's The Secret Books about? And by that, I mean, what's the story? Because we'll talk about what it's about in a minute. Well, the sto- Well, un- unusually for me, it's based on a true story, and I think it's about... 2002 I became aware of this I've always been interested in the mystery of Jesus's missing years right the fact that between the ages of about 13 and 30 we don't know what he was doing it doesn't say in the bible I mean he, perhaps he was working with Joseph in a carpenter's shop <laughs> but he probably wasn't for reasons we can go into so some people think he was in Glastonbury helping Joseph of Arimathea in the tin trade no one knows where he was <laughs> and that always seemed weird to me since he was he's one of the most influential figures in human history we don't know what he was saying for a huge chunk of his life. I became aware of a tradition that Jesus in his lost years had been studying Buddhism in India. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And also I partly thought, I kind of wish that was true. I mean, what a lovely idea if it were. (laughs) And I began to look into it and I discovered that one of the sources for this apocryphal tale is a manuscript discovered by a Russian journalist in a monastery in Ladakh in 1887 which is a religious text telling the story of Jesus's sojourn in India and his stud- him studying Buddhism and his studying Hinduism and I got this book out, it's called The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ, and it was published by a Russian called Nicholas Notovich in Paris in 1894, and I've been fascinated by the book ever since. And I, for a long time I was thinking maybe I'd write a non-fiction story, a non-fiction account of it, and I've done, initially anyway, I was trying to stand it up, because I would like to believe it's true. Actually, I don't think it is true, <laughs> sadly, or at least I don't think the manuscript that Notovich found does what he claims <laughs> it does, but I think it's a fascinating story. Nonetheless, and apart from anything, it's rather interesting that a Russian guy is in British India at this point. Mm. He's up to no good, clearly. And I became drawn into the the saga around Notovich's book. Why was he doing it? Why would he claim that? And and the mystery attending to it. So 
this book that Notovich finds, we can say, is a secret book. Right, and I brought you a copy. This you have indeed. The Life of Jesus Christ, the original 1894 French edition, very well thumbed. And that's right, that's, so that's one of the secret books of the title. Yeah, so indeed, the title is The Secret Books. Now, there is another book, or shall we say pamphlet, that comes up later in the story that we'll talk about later on. Yes. But beyond that, the idea of the secret books here is, is a wider thing, isn't it? You're basically talking about the unlived lives of people. That's right. I was thinking, I've been thinking about it a lot. I'm, I, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that what actually happened, we're tremendously biased, we overvalue what actually happened. And we always come up with reasons for why what happened happened and we justify it. And in retrospect, it all seen as inevitable that, you know, the current president should race to victory or that we should be now, you know, making plans to leave Europe as though any other outcome is unthinkable. And actually, you know, and I know that uh, tiny margins affect the outcome, that things are and not inevitable and and also that our lives could all have turned out differently and I became fascinated with the idea of what would be the complete account of everyone's potential or of a you know, just take a of, a of a random human being, all the things they could have done. Mm-hmm. And, and I became fascinated by that. And also by the notion that maybe the secret books, the books we could have been, uh, tell us as much about ourselves as what actually, for random reasons, happened. Also, I've got, I'm right, I've taken heart from the, I believe it's quite mainstream now in quantum physics to believe that... Yeah, the multiple universe. The multiverse, right, yeah. that everything that can happen does happen. Mm-hmm. Only we, we're stuck on one line of causality, so we only ever get to perceive. Yeah, let's call it the sliding doors theory. <laughs> right. <laughs> also, obviously, this idea that there are multiple lives that everybody could have lived is... It's also a metaphor for fiction as well. You've written, you've written a novel. I think that's right, and I think I, I, I opened the book slightly parodying my, my own misgivings about making up stories. But I do feel that we're surrounded by storytelling now in very conscious, cynical ways. In fact, and every time someone talks about alternative facts, I think the only alternative facts you need are in fiction. You know, mm-hmm. there, 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 there aren't alternative facts, right? There's facts, and we can argue about the interpretation <laughs> of them. But fiction does in does present you with alternative facts and I think maybe that's one of the great purposes of a novel is to introduce you to alternative ways of looking at the world to flex your compassion for other human beings mm-hmm. that's what the philosopher Richard Rorty says is he says that fiction makes us aware of suffering that we had not previously attended to but it's not just suffering it also I think makes you realize that there, there are other things could have turned out other ways there are other lives that we can briefly inhabit Normally at this point, I'd start asking you about some of the characters in the book. But as you've sort of hinted at, one of the major characters in this novel is yourself, or at least a version of yourself, yes. the author. The book is told generally in the in the third person, but very specifically, you've inserted yourself into the story. Tell me why. Specifically and perhaps quite annoyingly. No, <laughs> I, um, I flirted with the idea of writing a book that started... In 1887, Nicholas Notovich rode his horse up to the gates of Hemis Monastery and mm-hmm. knocked on the door. Perhaps it would be slightly better than that. But I was thinking about trying to do it straight. And I just couldn't kind of get my... I couldn't get my enthusiasm up for a version of the story. I wanted to... And because so much of the story is about storytelling mm-hmm. and rival versions of stories, I think I wanted to honour the fact that this is just another version told by just another person with their own idiosyncrasies, annoying habits, prejudices, 
wrongheadedness, you know, psychological problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose, in a sense, I thought that's how we forget. That's how all stories arise from a single person making stuff up. Uh, and how, you, know, you can prettify it however you want, but that is, is what a story is, is someone making something up. And so I thought, well, I can make a virtue of this and I can have it unfold and, sh- and try like a magician sort of explaining the trick as they're going along. That was my ambition for it. I'll bring, I'll, I'll create a contract with the reader where I won't bamboozle you or pretend mm-hmm. that I'm better or no more. I'm, I'll be, I'll try and be as straight as I can with you about how this thing is arising in my brain. You know, which is something I, I like. I, I kind of wish more writers would do that. And one of the one of the sort of aspects of that is that you you are basically explicitly saying, this is. I'm creating here my version of this story, and therefore sometimes the time slips and the characters in eighteen right. whatever encounter things. What are the yeah? What are the characters? Mulhouse basically says to Notovich at some point, "Check out my blog and, right. and things." And right. they have a drink of, they find a can of coke in the, of in the and that's right, and the minibar. That's right, and the guy's answering email in 1893. Mm. And you know, and some people. Have, so I think some people loathe that, and I in early drafts of the book I was showing it to people, and some people think, you know, I really like it. What's up with the anachronisms? You know, can you take them out? And I and I was conscientiously thought maybe you know, am I if I'd gone out of my mind? But I really, uh, I, I, it would have broken my heart to lose them. And I think what I I, I saw the, the book happening like that. I mean, that's how that was my dream. That's how I saw it. But also, I think I wanted to flag the fact that. History is not some remote, perfect, cosy fantasy that only happened in the past. That it's a dead weight that presses on us continually, whether you like it or not. And perhaps it's an aspect of my midlife crisis as the older I get, the more I see how history presses down on us and conditions our choices and and is affecting the way current affairs is turning out. And I, I didn't, so I didn't want to make a cosy past. I wanted to make a past that felt a bit more urgent and a bit more, and that was clearly linked to the present day. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about Nicholas Notovich then. Who is he? And it, to begin with, I'm talking about your version. So right. who is he in the novel? Well, in the novel, Nicholas Notovich is an ambitious young man on the make who grows up in uh, he grows up in a lower middle class. He's a shopkeeper's son from Kerch, Crimea, in the Russian Empire, who's bitten by the bug of journalism. Wants the glamour of uh, he follows a rather glamorous war correspondent into the Balkan Wars, ends up in Paris, and then is, uh, as m- many a writer found, has found before and since, is stuck <laughs> in a literary career with all its uncertainty and is trying to make money and gradually gets entangled with the czarist secret police in Paris in his efforts to, uh, in his efforts to make a living. And the real... Not of it. What do we actually know of him? Well, pretty much that it, that is also true of the real Notovich. I, I went quite deep on Notovich, but I, I, I may, Neil, I may in fact be the world's greatest <laughs> living authority currently on Nicholas Notovich. 
Uh, well, it's not a grand claim. I know, no, so quite obscure. But he, uh, but I've, I went to the British Library, and, and there, are, there are some declassified documents about him because he was up to some skullduggery talking to the Imperial, the British India office. He was, trying, mm. he was basically trying to get on the payroll as a double agent. Mm-hmm. And there's an account of the person who interviewed him in Simla in 1886. And so, and he also turns up in other people's books. But, but, but by and large, what's known about him is that he was born. Uh, in 1858 in Crimea he then but then he kind of reinvents himself and he arrives in Paris and he turns up in French dictionaries of national biography as a slightly more uh, with his rough edges polished off and the one main thing about him that he never cops to and that we only really know by inference but I'm pretty certain of him is that he was Jewish and by the time he's a public figure in Paris he's converted to the Russian Orthodox religion and we can only speculate about why he might have done that but if you know anything about what life was like for Jewish mm-hmm. people in Russia during the 19th century, there are plenty of reasons, uh, not all of them theological, why you might decide to turn... turn and indeed we learn many of those reasons from this book. Yes. Well, that's right. And I, I, I wasn't aware of the degree of uh, prejudice. I, I knew it was bad. I didn't know quite how bad. <laughs> and I didn't know quite how the history of 19th century Russia is entwined with the history of 19th century anti-Semitism, which then becomes the history of anti-Semitism in our own era. Mm-hmm. And Notovich is kind of front and centre through all that and through a very turbulent and significant time. So tell me about the book. What does it say? Which book? This book. Oh, The London Life of Jesus Christ. Yes. It says that G- it describes uh, someone... Uh, it, it describes Jesus, Issa, travelling to India uh, at the age of 14. It, t- it tells you a little bit about the conventional story of Jesus' mm-hmm. life. And then he travels to India at the age of 14. He studies with the Hindus. He, he spends about three or four years studying with the Hindus. Then he goes and he studies with the Buddhists. And he uh, and become, reaches a very, very high level of enlightenment and hence, ends up going back home and then gets crucified. And it, and both, it has the biblical accounts sort of appended to it. That's only a small part of the book. That's the, that's the back third of the book. The first two-thirds is Notovich telling you how he came to find this extraordinary manuscript and how he was travelling in the dark and he broke his leg and he went to a monastery and he finally got them to show this manuscript which he then translated with the help of one of the monks. And actually for a time after it was published in 1894... A lot of people believed it was true, and it got a lot, a lot of positive attention. There were, it was reviewed in the New York Times. It was translated into a lot of languages. It went through 10 or 11 editions in, in France alone <laughs> in the first year of publication. But pretty soon afterwards, I think, the uh, experts started to weigh in. I mean, there's a lot of things in the book that don't quite stack up. And you know, in, and that's coming from me. And I really want to believe it was true. But the, there's odd things, like for example, he takes a camera with him to the dark. Notovich does, as you would mm-hmm. in a, you know 1887. If he takes a camera, but none of his pictures of the actual text come out. He never. The fact that it's in, it's in Pali is quite suspicious. Because I actually went to the dark mm-hmm. uh, about three years ago. Having written a draft of the book, I thought, well, it'd be nice to... I, I, I felt like it was important to give him the best possible shake and to go to the monastery and say, look, have you... I've heard about this book. Is it there? And so I went in, in a very cold January and I flew from... I, I was going to India for something else and it was very affordable mm-hmm. to book a budget flight from Delhi to, to Leh 
and I arrived and first of all lays at very high altitude so you come off the plane and you just feel like you're 100, year, 100 years old I thought I was going to have some sort of aneurysm <laughs> carrying my bag off the carousel and I, I got a I found a driver and we went to the monastery Hemis and we went up the steps to this monastery thinking that I was going to pass out there and then <laughs> Met the, uh, the junior abbot, had a long chat with him. And it, to cut long story short, he s- said that he doesn't know if there's a he doesn't know if it's there, which was a bit disappointing. But I think honestly, I think he didn't have the heart to tell me that it's a load of cobblers. And also, I think he doesn't want to dissuade the odd tourist mm-hmm. who comes following Notovich's footsteps from from coming. But he was very sceptical about the part, the fact that it was in this language, Pali. He mm-hmm. said that none of the documents in the library are in Pali, which I felt was him. Uh, well, at the time as well, people went and spoke to the abbot, and it was, you know, this is not. I mean, you said that you know it was obviously a massive success on its publication. Well, well, it, was, well it had a six or it had six to twelve months of being flavor of the month. Yeah, and then the heavy guns come in and people went back to the monastery talked to the abbot and they put a pretty nailed down case that Notovich had been how can we put this embroidering the truth and so what happens to him after that do we know because we know what happens to him in your book and we won't go into that we yes. know what his fate is in the secret books but if you look up Nicholas Notovich on Wikipedia, it has a, a year of his birth and then it's very vague. About when it has died. a time span about when he died. Have we any idea what actually happened to well, him? Well, I do. Well, I know more than it, most people because of a mysterious... Because you're the expert. Well, no, no but for, I was lucky, actually. I can't... I got a book out of the London Library that I, I thought, I'll look at... I'll, I want to read as many of his books as I can. And I found a book that he wrote in 1905 called The uh, Russia and the English Alliance. <laughs> and uh, I opened this book and on the frontispiece... It was inscribed to the Duchess of Kent by Notovich himself in January 1939 uh, in a blue pen in, in, and in French, and which was, uh, was absolutely gobsmacking mm-hmm. to me. This is because I'd gone far too deep. <laughs> Obviously, this is the but so so uh, that's proved that he lived till 1939. And I was, on one hand, kind of touched and thought it was funny that the last thing we should see him doing is sucking up to foreign royalty. That seemed enti- entirely Notovician, I think. But on the other hand, I thought, here's a Jewish guy in Paris in 1939. This is a terrible place to be because in a very short time, Germany is going to invade, Paris is going to fall, and we know that the fate of the French Jews was, ter- was terrible. This is, this is not, You don't want to be here at all. Mm-hmm. So after 1939... I'm not 100% sure what happened to him. And he was very old by then. He was over 80. And I suppose, in a way, the kindest thing would have been for him to die fairly shortly after that. I certainly wouldn't want him to have lived through the Nazi occupation. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Marcel Theroux and we're talking about The Secret Books, his latest novel. And Marcel, we've already mentioned uh, a glamorous foreign correspondent. Yes. And this is the character, amazing character, Wednesday McGann, who's um, also based on a on a real figure, isn't she? Yes, she is. Absolutely. Yeah, you, uh, yes, you've read it very carefully, Neil. I'm very, it's very heartening for a lonely author when you meet someone who's actually read your book. Uh, so Wednesday McGain is a is a is a female journalist for um, uh, Mer- for a British newspaper actually, and she's a lapsed Mormon, and, uh, and and she was a character I just absolutely loved writing and fell in love with, and actually someone who was copy editing it weirdly said, "Gosh, she really reminds me of Janet McTeer playing Petruchio in Taming of the Shrew at the Globe <laughs> in two thousand and three. And I said, you know, that is amazing because I saw Janet McTeer playing Petruccio in The Globe in 2003 and I'm definitely sure that that was a major inspiration for this this sort of flamboyant, cross-dressing female character. And, and yes, she is based on a real person, but disappointingly, the real person was a bloke called Januarius McGahan, who was also a, a journalist. But my version is slightly more colourful. And mm-hmm. uh, in a way, and he's actually realer to me than Januarius in spite of his excellent first name. No prizes for guessing which month he was born in. <laughs> well, putting aside Janet McTeer for a moment, you've made Wednesday a woman and that might seem interesting in itself that this is, you know, a woman being a foreign correspondent in the 1870s or whatever, but it turns out that there were these sort of pioneering women journalists roughly around that time so beyond Janet Mateer, is she based on anyone in particular? I didn't even know that. I, I, you know, you know that's amazing. I, I, I wish I had. I um... there's a woman that worked for the San Francisco Chronicle, and now I can't remember. Now I wish I'd written it down because I thought you might know. Well, you, I, you well, might say yes. Her, well, no, but but yeah. what's definitely true is that throughout history there have been these kind of mold breaking women. There was a very and I've, and forgive me if I've forgotten her name, but in the Tsarist army, there was a woman who wrote a... Uh, she wrote a memoir about serving in the Tsarist army in the in the early part of the 19th century. So through, there have always been uh, women who are not happy with... The, who, are not, who won't be confined by the roles that society prescribed mm-hmm. for them. And so Wednesday McGahn is, is someone like that. And uh, I didn't know... <laughs> 
<laughs> they were really people. I, I didn't really know. I didn't know there were journalists like that, but I know that there are women like that. And they were, but again, I guess, like Wednesday, he said they didn't want to be constrained by the sort of societal rules, and that means they make a huge sacrifice because following their sort of dream, I guess, is stepping outside of that. Isn't it? And I also felt that it was something to do with... I felt that, that her example was really important for Nicholas because Nicholas is a Jewish boy who reinvents himself. And not only reinvents himself, he tries to reinvent Christianity with his gospel in a, in a way that will mean that it's more accommodating mm-hmm. of other faiths. And I thought in uh, his early life, he has this example of this woman who's born into a, you know, not particularly encouraging inheritance given what's expected of women in the uh, in the mid 19th century and she's born to a mormon family who rips up the script that she's been presented with and decides to write her own life and live a, a life that's and very very few people have the courage <laughs> or capacity to do that and you, you one supposes that perhaps the people who do that can do nothing else they're compelled to do this it's not almost not a choice but i wanted to suggest that Nicholas is very influenced by this example of self-fashioning and that's the clue to understanding what it is he's up to in Ladakh all those years later. Another character that starts off as a, I guess, a colleague of Notovicius but becomes his sort of main antagonist in the book is Peter, the, the onomatopoeia, because you describe mm-hmm. him, Peter Rachkovsky. Rachkovsky. Um, who, again, is a another true-life figure. Who That's was right. he? So uh, Pyotr Rachkovsky, or Pierre Rachkovsky, was the, he was in charge of the Russian secret police in Paris from 1886. And his job was to lead what we recognise as the first war on terror. He, it was a really, really turbulent time for Russian politics, as we know, which culminated in 1917 with the Russian mm-hmm. Revolution. But at the time, in 1881, the Tsar, the then Tsar, was assassinated mm-hmm. by an uh, anarchist revolutionary. And uh, the, it throws, you know, throws the whole of Western Europe into a flap, but particularly Russia, because it's got, it's got this autocratic system. They're thinking they can't protect the Tsar. So they start to hunt down the revolutionaries, a lot of whom are in exile, a lot of whom are living in Paris, because it's uh, Paris has always been uh, congenial mm-hmm. to Bohemians. So uh, Rachkovsky is spy master in chief. He's sent in Paris. He runs agents. He tries to penetrate revolutionary movements. He has people bumped off and uh, he and he works to uh, strengthen the the Russian authority and it also clearly works to enrich himself because mm-hmm. all we know about him or what we know about him suggests that he was a a duplicitous and somewhat amoral individual of the kind who uh, the novelists can only be grateful for just as an aside here i have to mention that you credit at the end of the book finding him in um, alex butterworth's the world that never was which was covered on this show, however long ago that was, came out and remains one of my favourite books that I've, that that I've ever a, done on this show. And that's an amazing book. I'm so glad you book. were able to mention Alex Butterworth's book, The World That Never Was, because I, that was a very valuable... Uh, and I've, 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 I've been in touch with him, to, to, mm-hmm. and as well as they, uh, acknowledging him at the end of the book. He writes brilliantly mm, about Rachkovsky and has done some wonderful research. And it's everything, you almost can't make up stuff about Rachkovsky that is more extraordinary than the truth. But yes, that's right. So, and and the other good source for Rachkovsky, because ultimately the, one of the most interesting things about Rachkovsky is that he has a hand 
in the Protocols of the Elders yeah. of Zion. That's where we're going then. Which is right. Which is the, as you know, is the it's the mother of all conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. It's the document that claims that there's a Jewish conspiracy to control the world and to establish a world government. And it seems the evidence is strong that it was concocted in Paris at this time under Rutschkowski's, at Rutschkowski's behest, mm-hmm. in order to blacken the name of the revolutionary movements, in order to suggest that they were in fact puppets in the in the hand of, in the hands of the Jews, which is something that Rutschkowski wouldn't have believed himself. He would have known that the revolutionary movements had arisen because of the autocratic situation in Russia. Because it was a really it was a really miserable place, and the government was deeply reactionary. But what better way? in an anti-Semitic world, what better way to create hatred for your opponents and suggest that they're tools in the hands of the Jews? And the other thing about the protocols is, you know, even at the time, it was obviously demonstrable that it had been taken from, you know, an earlier work that had nothing to do with that Correct. thing. It's it was plagiarism. a plagiarism. It's a, it's a really bad plagiarism. Mm-hmm. It was kind of copy and pasted from a from a work uh, that was uh, and there with a few names changed and the and then the whole suggestion of the mm-hmm. Jews were, were were then added to this plagiarized document that's right and there, and there were no and it's been it's been successively debunked and it, it's been it's clearly it's patently false and yet i, I think as rechkovsky says it doesn't have to be mm. true because people feel it's true and uh, unfortunately, we haven't really moved beyond thinking with our guts about... <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, the, the, you know, clearly the Protocols of the Elders of Zion still has sort of relevance and, you know, its adherence in the world at the moment. But of course, here we are now in, in 2017. And of course, books, you know, they take a while to be conceived and take a while to write and they take a while to get published once they've been written. However, it does feel like this book is saying something to now because... You know, that idea of Ratchkovsky's about the protocols is exactly where we are now with, you know, with with Trump and Putin even. We could even look at, you know, yes. what's going on in Russia as well now. And this idea that fake news, right. as we glibly call it now, is like people don't seem to care about facts. I know, it's terrifying. And I wish I could take credit for the fact... I wish, But in fact, I had, um, you know, done, put my last full stop in probably, you know, March 2016... Mm-hmm. Uh, at which point I don't think fake news was a phrase that anyone had ever heard or, mm-hmm. or alternative facts. And I I'm scratching my head and wondering the timeliness is uh, is sort of accidental. But I, I think it, it's not sort of accidental. It is accidental. <laughs> uh, but I think that I was fascinated by the way that I've always been fascinated by the way we construct our reality with stories that we choose and fashion and then we pretend that they're not really stories and that's where reality really is now I I think reality is real I don't I'm not a postmodernist in that sense I think there are facts and we interpret them but I it's clear that people fight in this way Mm. over interpretations of the world and People are willing to shed blood and uh, do awful things to protect stories that they've given their lives to. And I think if it's a if there's a kind of um, timeliness about the book, it's just because that's always been the way. And but it's right now it seems more than ever. I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
Coming out of that, there's a... I mean, in the book, you allude to the possibility of, of Notovich being around at the time, and obviously the Protocols of the Elders as I inform part of the part of the plot. Yes. I didn't know really how much we could talk about this, because it, you know, it, is, it is the plot of the book, but I then noticed that it does sort of vaguely allude to it in the, uh, in the blurb, in the flyleaf. You sort of come to the conclusion that Notovich formulated the like you know hoaxed yes. the, the life of jesus as an anti-protocol yeah as a sort of penance for his possible involvement in well, the protocol see that we don't i don't know about that the, whether he was involved in the protocols and, he, and in the book he isn't with the book he's telling the story and i'm sure any you know no one would uh, it's possible you know he's a bright young jewish journalist speaks russian who's in paris at that time with links to the Secret Service, that's all possible, and he's there. And I've, in other books, uh, there's a book in Russian I've seen uh, written by an Israeli scholar and a guy called Dudakov, and he kind of it crosses his mind too. I don't know. I, I to me, I think I don't know, and no, and no one. Uh, the, I, 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 I'd like to think he didn't. It would certainly explain his zeal to come up with an antidote if he had, though, and then felt terrible about it. Because that's the thing about the protocols is no one could have anticipated what it would become. Mm -hmm. It was a document that was fashioned for a purpose in the here and now, which was purely to discredit progressive political movements. Then it takes on a life of its own. Once a story gets out into the world, it mutates and and it is read in a different way. And somehow uh, they lost control of that particular narrative and it became viral and it ends up being something that Hitler uses to justify uh, portions of Mein Kampf and as you said down to the present day there are people who believe it's the case Just one more thing for me and then I'll get you to read a bit of the book if you would um, of the secret books not the actual (laughs) book that one's in French another character that features in this book is your real life great Uncle yes, Leonard yes, Castle. Yes. Tell us who he was. So my great uncle Leonard, uh, who lived who lived near where I happen to live in South London. Uh, in fact, I, the, he lived in the shop which is a, is now a hairdresser, and I, my kids get their hair cut in that shop, and I always feel that's sort of weird that uh, you know that I've, I've moved so I, I have have moved at all in the I've moved up in the world for a hundred years. Uh, but Leonard, uh, like many young men, um, signed up to fight in the British Army in 1914 and died in 19 was shot in 1916. And I've always, I've always been, you know, I suppose that's part of my fascination with the secret books. That's where it came from initially, because I've often thought, you know, what if Leonard hadn't died? What, what? Because it, it was, it cast a terrible shadow on my family, I, which I could see in my grandfather who was considerably younger than Leonard but you could see that it had been uh, a source of pain for him and his parents but then extending that out you think of that entire generation who died and you think of the weight of the loss that that meant for so many families in this country and then so many families in Europe there's families in Germany and uh, of, of young women who didn't have partners because men didn't come home from the war men who came back from the war but were seriously damaged and I was thinking you things could have been different they didn't have to go and die what if they hadn't what would it have meant if that generation hadn't gone to fight hadn't been killed if we'd managed to avert that war as I, I you know it's not that I'm a pacifist I can think that of struggles that are worth laying down your life for but it seemed like to me 
that we clearly live in a suboptimal world. We live in a world that's the result of these historical decisions and one can imagine a world that was clearly better than the one we ended up with. If I could get you to read a bit, yeah, that would be, be great. So Nicholas, Nicholas Notovich has broken his leg and he's resting up at a monastery in Ladakh. At night, the monastery is lit with oil lamps. The flames smell faintly sweet and burn yellow, the colour of the butter that fuels them. Studying Nicholas's face in the dim light, the abbot notes a new alertness in the invalid, a blazing in the eyes that could be mistaken for fever. Issa, it's your name for Jesus, Nicholas says. Jesus, Yeshua, Issa, the same name in different faiths. The abbot lifts a sputtering oil lamp and uses a long metal pin to draw out the wick. What you call faiths, we call the disguises of the lost reality. Satisfied with the adjustment, he places the lamp beside its companions on a brass tray. Even the greatest sage is uttering truth in whispers. As it passes from mouth to ear to mouth, it acquires inevitable distortions. Here, we cultivate stillness in order to regain the clarity of that first breath. He picks up the Bible from Nicholas's bed. More unites us than divides us. In your holy book also, contraries arise from the void. That is the beginning of all. Behind the false oppositions, reality. Behind the ten thousand things, the way. The long flames of the butter lamps leave purple afterimages on Nicholas's eyelids when he blinks. The effect recalls the paraffin lantern in his father's shop, by the light of which he memorised human anatomy, learned about the circulation of the blood and lymph, and whose heat awoke the dreams of India that foreshadowed just such a moment as this. And what do you know of Issa? Nicholas asks. What you know from your gospel. He was born. He attained enlightenment. He taught. He was put to death. He was born of a virgin, Nicholas says. So it is written in your scripture, the abbot replies politely. Into the ensuing silence he projects this unmistakable thought. Whether it is true or not is of no account. He rose again on the third day, Nicholas asserts with a touch of defensiveness. The abbot inclines his head. Similarly, it is written. Light flares from one of the lamps, and then, modestly, tentatively, he offers the extraordinary gift. And I know also what is written in our secret books. I've been talking to Marcel Thoreau. We've been talking about The Secret Books, his latest novel, which is out now from Faber. Marcel, thank you so much for coming in. and Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 